everyone with an interest in MASH, or more broadly, metabolic-associated steatonic liver disease, surfs up. Doesn't that roll off the tongue? Season 4, Episode 48 of Surfing the MASH Tsunami, our interviews with some of our best friends about what they're looking forward to at the Liver Meeting 2023, starts now. Today on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. I'll start with this non-science for a second and talk about influencing in communities and how working together globally can make a difference. For me, that was really, really important. There's a session on Healthy Livers, Healthy Lives, which is, of course, the easel program that they started, I think, a couple years ago. And now they're having the North American launch. Even though a lot of people don't want to talk about this, I do want to revisit and hear the advances on the nomenclature. I'd like to know about uh, how it's been implemented in the U.S. And, and Canada and around the world and you know what the other people are doing and to see if there's been any updates or anything I, I think it's important so that we're on the same page. That would screen for combination therapy because if you get any kind of synergistic effects between two drugs it'll go up and the first line therapies are 30 and 35 percent and people are going to be going to second line therapies pretty quickly. I never get tired of hearing the importance of and the value of serial assessments for example during clinical trials when biopsies aren't available and there's a lot of utility in the real world to that. As we prepare for the Liver Meeting 2023, Surfing the Nash Tsunami is interviewing some of our guest opinion leaders on what they find most exciting about the upcoming agenda. Today, Roger Green speaks with Fatty Liver Alliance founder and president, Mike Patel, about sessions and themes at TLM 2023 he anticipates most eagerly. This is Roger Green, host of the podcast, soon to be officially rebranded Surfing the Mashed Tsunami. This week, our plan was to record an episode on the liver risk score, but that fell apart at the last minute due to some conflicts that only emerged on Monday. We were unable to record this week. We hope to have that interview for you at a later point in time. So next on the release schedule, and pushed up a few days, was the preview run-up to the Liver Meeting 2023 from AASLD, which takes place in Boston starting on November 9. The original plan was to record several interviews that we would release on the week that starts on October 30th, but we are stepping that up a little bit. We will do one or two of them the end of this week, and two, three, or more over the course of next week. Each will be an individual interview with one of our favorite guests, discussing what that person anticipates most eagerly about TLM 2023. Today, we're publishing an interview with our friend Mike Patel, founder and president of the Fatty Liver Alliance. Mike, who has been traveling to meetings all fall and speaking at many of them, was able to spend some time with me on Thursday discussing some of the general topics and general issues that make TLM 2023 so exciting for him. Hope you enjoy. So the uh, second in our series of conversations about why we're so excited about TLM 2023 is with our good friend Mike Patel, the president of the Fatty Liver Alliance. And uh, I'm excited, Mike, because we'll get to do a reprise of our picture in Vienna and hopefully my hair will not be blowing all over the place. I've never gotten so many people laughing at me about a video post in my life. Your, your camera skills are really exceptional. <laughs> you put on a really interesting face for me. How are you today? Uh, I'm good, too. My hair is getting long, too, so we'll, we'll try not to stand outside. 
language to Wendy. So where, where are you today? I'm in Toronto, Canada. Ah, where you usually are. I'm not traveling the world. No, no it's not where I usually am at all. <laughs> I'm usually everywhere but here. Washington last week at, at Mosaic, and that was uh, fantastic. So I am really, really looking forward to going to Boston and seeing and reconnecting with so many people. That's going to be so great. It's, exci- it's going to be an exciting meeting. Isn't every year exciting, though? Now, yes. Oh, no, not during COVID. We won't count those years. Not, not only COVID, but also there wasn't that much content, and mostly people were bummed out about all the drunk trials that weren't working. But I think the, the level of science, we're now at a point where the level of science just steps up repeatedly and exponentially. And so I think that's a good thing. And and the patient voice is elevated from what it used to be as well. So from my perspective, I think that's fantastic to be able to have more people be able to share the needs of patients and the importance of patients in things like clinical studies, as an example. Will you be speaking in Boston? No, I wasn't invited. So anyone listening, I'm open for 2024. Uh, no, I, I didn't I didn't do one of the patient voice segments uh, uh, this year. So, Although you certainly do have a voice and you are for the most part a patient, <laughs> certainly an advocate. I will before. be heard. Uh, don't worry. You know, no one ever worries about you being heard, Mike, or seen, by the way. For those who don't know, the way to find Mike is go to any presentation he's at and look for, look for the guy in the front row with the silver hair. <laughs> front row. I thought you were going to say front row center. Okay, front row silver hair in the center. That's good. Yeah, so yeah, I, I didn't want to give away all your tricks. If I said center, then no one would have had anything at all. If I say front row silver hair. At least people have to know where to look, right? <laughs> so if someone is close to my seat, I know they listen to your podcast. So tell me about some of the things in this meeting, in all seriousness. You were as assiduous about going to presentations as anybody I know. And you already showed me your calendar with the with the hot ones marked in red and the maybes marked in blue. So what are some of the red presentations for you in this meeting? And what are you excited about seeing? Okay. Admittedly, I have to still go through to find out like the things like the late breakers and all of those things. I don't, I haven't pulled that out yet, but I have one science one I put aside. I'll talk about it in a second. And, and for me, it is like I started the conversation today about, about connecting with people and there's so many opportunities. I'll, I'll start with this non-science uh, for a second and talk about influencing in communities and how working together globally can make a difference. For me, that was really, really important. There's a session on Healthy Livers, Healthy Lives, which is, of course, the easel program that they started, I think, a couple years ago. And now they're having the North American launch. So if you look at some of the top speakers just in that one session, it's like Jeff Lazarus, uh, Maru Ranella, Mazen Nuruddin, Alexandra Krog, and, and there's and there more. It's all one session. So I, I'm excited about, about that piece, too, because I think we can work together to really make a difference and help identify patients, find patients, and all that. So if you have one session with that many people in it, my question would be, what's the formatting that allows a session like that to work? I mean, that's an awful lot of people. Yeah, they didn't share a lot. It's about an hour. So I imagine probably Jeff Lazarus will be leading some of that, and Alexander Krog will, will be talking about some of the successes that they've had, giving some examples. You were there. They teased us a bit at Easel and showed us some of the programs that were impacting communities. And I, people were were literally crying in the audience. Uh, I think it was you. No, I was Weeping. maybe a little bit. It was no. It was about the kids with drawings and stuff. I just thought there was a lot of really human touch. I tried to instill at presentations, uh, including like Mosaic, uh, when when I went, the, the human side of things. And the science is incredibly important, but it has to be balanced with the real world and people. And so I, I do have to keep being that other side of the balance of the equation a little bit. That makes sense. The other, not that you're asking me my second thought, but the other one, even though we've talked about it a lot, and even though a lot of people don't want to talk about this, I do want to revisit and hear the advances on the nomenclature. And there's like two hours of that on Saturday. Uh, they have 12 speakers, so speaking about a lot of people. And so there is the implications of the changes. I'd like to know about uh, how it's been implemented in the U.S. and, and Canada and around the world and you know what other people are doing and to see if there's been 
any updates or anything. I, I think it's important so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, going, going along from there. Okay, so how have you been finding all that in your work with patients and things? I made the decision, I'll start with that, to adopt it and accept it. I've always been an early adopter of new things, new technologies. First one to have a pager, yep, first one to have a color overhead. So one of the first ones to uh, to accept the nomenclature piece as well. And so I think that things are progressing slowly. I still see a lot of maffled out there in you know new publications, but that could be just because it's legacy from you know months ago. But from the patient perspective, Perspective. I have talked more recently to more people that actually like it more uh, because it's clearer. And for them, not only does it identify patients who are using alcohol versus everybody who has liver disease and cirrhosis uses alcohol. And so they like that met all division and the, the way that the pillars are laid out. That's always been one of my favorite points about that. And then the idea of met all, I think, I think it's really huge. In general, and one of the things that um, Jorn talked about that he's interested in is a paper that looks at not using the SCRN, but using the histo index scoring system to assess PRC3. And his point, not the first time it's been made, is that if what you use is a ordinal or nominal scoring system, then you're creating artificial breaks somewhere. And that creates a lot of error. Whereas if you can avoid that, right, then that works out a lot better. So focusing on one pillar at a time, I guess, right? That's what it would lead to? It's not about one pillar at a time so much as it's about how do you do the analysis. If you think about it, F3, F4 is kind of an artificial distinction. A less artificial distinction would have to do with some kind of continuous score based on whatever it's on because the continuous score gives you a lot more gradations. It gives you the ability to reflect subtleties. You're not creating an artificial cut and saying bang. So, you know, the whole idea that either you had alcoholic or non-alcoholic uh, steatosis, I understand that they present differently. And that, for example, the chicken wire or fibronic pattern that you see in alcohol is different than what you see in non-alcoholic, but people do both, right? It comes down to really, uh, with that discussion point, it comes down to understanding individual patients' needs and tailored care. I truly believe that we cannot treat every patient the same. And so this nomenclature designation will help have more insightful discussions with the patients, having them with the physicians, and, you know, possibly even some other, you know, there might be even multidisciplinary involvement too, depending on the patients themselves, which is important as well. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to continue talking about it and sharing it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a tremendous sense to me. So what else are you interested in besides these two things? There was the paper, and, and there may be other very significant ones you can share back with me because I would like to know as well. Uh, but Rohit Lumba has the Enliven study update. And when it was first broke in the news, there was a lot of interest and uptake on it. So I imagine that it's breakthrough with regard to the fact that it's an option, possibly an option for a therapeutic treatment for NASH with cirrhosis and the fact that it actually showed fibrosis regression, which is one of those things that it was always elusive in some of the other drugs that were studied. So I've read the abstract, but maybe there's uh, you know other data that's going to be shared and hearing it live is always more interesting than reading it anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. I think, first of all, they're to be a bunch of drug papers coming out. So I, I think what tends to happen is that we get tantalized and then we get to a point where something doesn't feel quite as good as it used to. Discontinuation data on some of the uh, triple agonists, for example. We had high hopes for uh, FGF21 and cirrhosis. The CARO trial didn't do as well as people had hoped it might. But I think we'll get to peek under the hood a little bit more than what happens if all you see is the press release and you hear the investor call. And that's hope that other people don't get fatigued by new opportunity. <laughs> so I get it, though. It's you're, you're, I, you're reflecting what probably a lot of people 
people feel when Stephen Harrison has shared historically, not recently, but historically about the graveyard of past, let's say, failures, but maybe they were lessons learned more than failures, as he would say. I want to stay optimistic and go, we'll, we'll get, we're going to get there. Well, look, we are getting there. I think, I think we've seen enough data on resmeterone by now, yeah. for example, to know that that drug should get there. Jorn presented the Meister Nash data at UEG in Copenhagen, and that was like the hit, that was a hit paper at that conference. A lot of Twitter action on that, or X action, whatever you want to call it. You know, so I'll be intrigued to see the resmeterone presentations. I'll be intrigued to see more about the Sajimit drug, the name of which I'm forgetting right now, uh, the uh, HU6 drug, that uh, the mitochondrial decoupler that, that, that Mazen's been presenting on. I think the way this works is you get new modes of action, you identify new problems, and you get new modes of action, and you get new drugs. You know, there are, I guess I can say, because everybody knows, but I guess there's organizations like Gilead as an example that work really well. They specialize in combination drugs and combination therapies. And so I imagine the way we're going to go to is, is, is double or triple therapy at some point to hit, like you just said, maybe it's the hot thyroid, maybe it's the weight loss, maybe I mean, it's a combination of everything. I don't know which way we're going to go, which pathways are going to be the most effective. Could be a combination of everything, right? Well, if you think about it, right, none of the drugs that we're looking at in monotherapy are efficacious in more than half the patients. And in fact, mostly less than that. So that would scream for combination therapy because if you get any kind of synergistic effects between two drugs, it'll go up. And the first line therapies are 30 and 35%. Then people are going to be going to second line therapies pretty quickly. It could be like uh, patients might need like a booster effect. So let's say they take the first therapy and it's and it's partially effective. The 25% though, is it like the 25% where it's working, you're good and the other 75% are going to need something else or is it going to be the 25 or the other percent maybe together it's enough to push them over? I don't know that combination, but that would probably be the way that you would go. You would use first line and then go from there, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I personally expect to spend a lot of time in NIT presentations actually. For sure. I have a, a number of, of sessions too with, with NITs. Of course, I never get tired of hearing the importance of and the value of serial assessments, for example, during clinical trials when biopsies aren't available. And there's a lot of utility in the real world to that. And if we can encourage patients to participate more in studies because it's non-invasive, it's going to be better for everybody. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, look, I'm actually interested in what happens when drugs come to market. I mean, one of the challenges that you can foresee is if resmeterone is only deemed effective in a third of patients and it takes you a long time to figure that out, then you can see payers in the U.S. at least saying, gee, it's an awful lot of money you're asking me to spend on something I'm not sure is ever going to do me any good. So how can we get to a faster answer on that? And the faster answer isn't going to be multiple biopsies. It's going to be smart use of non-invasive tests. So I'll be intrigued at sort of presentations that take a look at anything that helps us figure out what we can learn faster. You know, back in the day, in quotes, when we were looking at hepatitis C, we used, well, first of all, we used ALT, so that was not so good. But later, when we were using HCV RNA to monitor impact from, uh, you know, from treatment uh, before it was a cure, that was one of the things that you could do. You could see the, you know, the virus levels change. And so I think that it might be, you're right, if you can have a marker to just indicate if it's working a little, a lot or not at all, that would be helpful. Right. And how quickly. Yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing about HCV is if you can get rid of the viral load, you know, eventually call general follow, fibrosis will follow. Here, there is no pre-marker like a viral load, which is what makes the whole NIT question so complicated. And, and Roger, honestly, there's no cure either. Even if you normalize the liver, people can still go back to poor whatever it is that's happening to them. If it's self-inflicted, then uh, they could cause a, a relapse and have it all over again, the fatty liver, the whole cycle, right? Absolutely. Oh, sorry, on that note, I can I, I, I wanted to say one of the things that I was interested in at the meeting, which is like a two-parter, yeah. uh, is mastol from tweens. I haven't heard that in a long time, tweens. Like, well, maybe when I was a teenager, <laughs> but from tweens to, to 20s. I, I know tweens to 20s is kind of a twicky thing to say, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we'll have a triple alliteration maybe, right? That, that, that's one of the ones I was most interested in. Totally agree with you. I mean, it's, it's two sessions. I'm trying to remember who's who's in that. Well, Mazin is one, and Alina Allen is two that I know really well. So. And Dr. Uh, Zanathos, is that her name from Cincinnati? The one who just published the paper on the demographics of all this stuff? It's a fantastic paper. So I, I'm really intrigued to hear what she has to say. She's in that panel also. It's got to be, I feel like Back to the Future, what he said, it's not you, Marty, it's your kids. So it's like, it's about the kids, it's about the kids, right? That's the future. And when you have kids that already are showing fatty liver and cirrhosis by the time they're 25 or 30, like we got to take care of that early and we are failing miserably. Tweens and teens, for God's sake. I mean, it's even worse than that, right? 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds. I've had these because of my granddaughter's age, right? I I went to her end of the year school picnic in May and I was watching the kids playing kickball on the playground. And one of the things that struck me is a lot of those kids were heavy, much heavier than I remember anybody being when I was a kid. Did did you notice what they were eating for lunch? Uh, Well, I wasn't watching. I mean, this was a playground and it was a picnic. So it was whatever their parents brought. So no, I didn't watch what crap their parents brought, but trust me, I'm sure it wasn't pretty. But look, I look at our school picture, you know, from when I was in elementary school, and nobody was as big as about a third of these kids were. That's, that's interesting. A, I haven't gone back to look at that age group. That's, that's but, a good... but that, that when you talk about tweens and teens, that's really where you are, right? Naeem, on a podcast earlier this year, last year, talked about treating a 13-year-old patient with cirrhosis. How do you get there, you know? It's really bad, and, and, and I'm not sure that the awareness aspect is enough to... I, I'm hoping to get some insights here about what we can do to change reality. So, sure, we have the data and maybe even the schools, I don't think so, because they have their own curriculum and their own timelines and they probably don't like change very much. But maybe as part of the health curriculum, there's a way to start to instill the right ways to eat and also to exercise. But I remember when we were younger, they had a lot more gym programs and a lot more activities than they do now in a lot of schools when they don't have that luxury. Yeah, I think and I think that's actually an important point, right? Uh, we've talked about on podcasts from time to time, the importance of social determinants of health and all the ways that socially we're kind of letting people down that we didn't use to. Not kind of letting people down, letting people down. If we don't have, if we don't have safe playgrounds, if we don't have gym and school, right? All of those things, all of those absences, all the things that we've taken away have a real impact on patients, on kids' ability to grow up healthy. I, I just, you know, and, then, I, and then we put them in front of video games and we feed them crap food. Well, I just listened to, there was some podcasts on sugar this week. Uh, there was an organization having six days in a row of sugar stuff. And they were saying, uh, one of them, that it's actually often the parents' fault. Oh, yeah. They just put it right on the parents. You're sending them to school. If the food wasn't brought in by the parents, most of these young kids wouldn't have that food. So sure, they can sneak a little bit at school or something, but it's it's the choices that they have to learn how to make now. So yeah, we have our work cut out for us and it's not going to take, it's going to take years. It's not going to take months. Naeem and Dr. Kumar for a while, I think it is, are doing a presentation at some point on digital therapeutics. And we're starting to see those get approved. Yeah, digital therapeutics, which uh, can augment drug therapy. And if you talk about tweens and teens and 20s, I guess that's twee age group thrown together. For those of us who really want to speak badly and, and, and uh, mutilate the English language. But for tweens and teens and 20s who live in a digital world anyway, the idea of digital therapeutics that can help drive them to better behavior is a really good thing. So I'll be really intrigued. I mean, better therapeutics is proved now. Mazen, uh, Naeem was one of the lead investigators on that program. He's, Naeem's done work with Noom, a whole bunch of people on this stuff. So I'll be intrigued to see exactly what they're talking about. I'm looking forward to that too. But I have to admit, when you, I understand what the, the, the digital therapeutics is all about, and I totally support it, and I think it'll it'll really make a difference with patients. But you know how your brain subconsciously goes to something else, and you started to talk about that. You know what I thought of first? I 
I bet you there are more teens that are using online apps to change the way that they look for social media artificially than when they're actually watching their health. And so they thin their face and post or whatever they're doing to make themselves look better than reality. And that that they that they have down. <laughs> sorry, but it's so true. You know, I'm sorry. I'm so old that every I'm, I'm 10 years older than you remember everything. And you're old that everything I want to say is inappropriate. Oh, there's that grandfather thing again. You know, they just whine all day long. Yeah, but 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 it's true. I mean, the interesting question, though, is there will be people who will be motivated. Yeah, parents and kids. On digital, I think the motivation might be higher with kids. I'll be interested to see when they present data, what they have to say about kids versus adults on that, if they know anything yet. And similarly, looking at the two-part thing on the tweens and the teens and Mazel and MASH, I'll be interested to see what they have to say there, if anything, on the nature of intervention. I mean, one of those sessions is mostly about the demographics. The other, I think, is about intervention. So I'll be interested to see what they've got for intervention. It's a two-parter. Well, if they can come up with solutions that can be shared globally so that we can all be on the same page, why reinvent the wheel? If they can come up with things that we can use and, I mean, it would be up to us locally to try to figure out how to get it into the school system, as an example, or to the parents. But there may be ways for us to make change that way, right? Yeah. Because the bigger thing, I mean, going to the government and like in other countries where they ban commercials for kids' cereal on Saturday mornings, uh, that's a bigger fight. And I, I don't know in North America if we'll get there. Well, one would hope. So the New York Times, I think it was, might have been, I think it was the Times, ran a really interesting piece a couple of weeks ago. It's not directly about fatty liver disease, but it's directly to what you just talked about, commented on. They took a look at three counties, all of which are on the southern border of Lake Erie, one in New York, one in Pennsylvania, one in Ohio. And the young death rates, death rates under 55 for medical reasons, in the three states are vastly different. They're all high by national standards. But in New York, it was about 20. In Pennsylvania, it was in the mid-20s. Ohio was in the high 20s. And they traced it back to a lot of policy decisions. You know, how much of a tax do you place on cigarettes? And how much money do you spend educating people on the downside of smoking? Right. And other issues like that. And it's not surprising, though, Ohio, where they didn't spend very much money educating the downside of smoking, where cigarette taxes are low and the cigarette lobby is very, very strong, has a much higher rate of death under 55 from lung cancer than either of the other two states. My point being, if we're not going to fight on advertising, then we're basically starting with two hands tied behind our back and an awful lot of money we have to spend to catch up. I don't know which is the best way to go. So the first question is for cigarettes, for example. Did putting on d- disgusting images on the cigarettes actually decrease usage? I mean, that's one lesson, right? I, I you know, I've seen, I, I don't know the studies on that. I've seen, I've seen papers looking at both sides of that saying that if you show people disgusting images of the lungs, they feel like they're rotting inside and that doesn't motivate them to believe they can quit. But, but certainly frank messages that they, if you smoke, this will happen. You know what? Speaking of that, I just saw for the first time, I won't say the drug here, so, so either way, but a drug that is advertised a lot lately for type 2 diabetes and, and weight loss. And it was a very serious commercial. There was no singing in it. It was like, at the end, did you see that one? And at the end it goes, beep, don't end up like that. Did I go too far? You know, it's like, whoa, like where'd that come from? So, you know, we might need to get that that frank with people. Yeah. And, and well, look, there's there's a, there's a whole arc to this stuff, right? I mean, if, if you talk about a multi-year campaign to educate people on an issue, there are places to start and places to go. What's interesting to me is that probably the, to me in some ways the most successful any of those campaigns ever was the Viagra, the original Viagra campaign, which started with, you know, Bob Dole talking about his little, his little blue friend. But, but seriously, I mean, the point of the initial campaign was to make it okay to talk about erectile dysfunction and then to make it a scientific thing as compared to just something people giggled about or got embarrassed about. Because if I can legitimate the disease and then I can put science behind it, then I people understand where to look for a solution, right? Yeah. Allergan then Abby did the same thing with Botox Cosmetic. You know, first you had to, first you had to produce the science of it and then you could go and you could educate people about, you could, you could create situations for folks to understand. Here, the problem with the um, singing, dancing, um, SGLT2 and, and GLP-1 commercials is that it might make the drug 
drug feel less intimidating. And you watch somebody who's a little bit heavier dancing around doing it and say, wow, that could be me. But it's not clear that you're educating people on what they're getting into. And when that matters for GLP-1, for example, is you've got high de- gastric discomfort and discontinuation rates, then you need to actually sell the value of the therapy, not just, gee, I'll be able to dance around like this and sing if I take this drug. <laughs> True. And we don't want to hear you sing anyway. You know, I do sing. <laughs> I, I, I sing in bars with piano players. Not, not, I'm not doing that last night right here. <laughs> Perfect. To me, I'm not a patient advocate, although I certainly advocate for patients. Play one on TV, though, right? Uh, not, not, I don't play much <laughs> anything on TV. I, I, don't, I don't have a face for television. I have a face a mother could love, not for television. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, I think a lot of the question winds up being about listening for that. What can we learn about better motivating patients? You know, Louise Campbell makes the argument forever that the benefit really of fiber scan at the end of the day is you give people a number and they know what the number means and then how to shoot for a lower number. And if they want to get better, that one number means a lot. We know one of the, it became a lot easier to get patients to manage their own diabetes if they came up with glycohemoglobin because it's a simple blood test. It's not highly variable over time. And it's one number. And you say, get up below six. Perfect. Get up below seven. Pretty good. Above seven. Got a problem. People know how to deal with that. Here, we don't have that. One of the reasons to look at NITs, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the whole question of how do we provide better behavioral support and education for patients? And when I go through the entire abstract book in detail, which is one of the things I plan to do while I'm on vacation next week, but the one piece of work I'm going to do next week is rip through the abstract book and figure out what I really like in here. Um, one of the sets of things I'll be looking for will be papers that help us understand better? How do we motivate and educate patients? And how do we educate caregivers to do that better? Well, one thing we didn't talk about yet, just to share too, uh, that some of the pharma companies, obviously pre-launch, are getting patients and patient advocates together to talk about and understand even better the patient journey. And so some of that uh, will come to light too, with regard to you know what needs to be done and what was the most impactful just in the real world. So I'm really happy that that's happening. So I'm assuming those are private events at the meeting. Yes. And I assume you'll be going to a bunch of them. Yes. Yeah. Good. Trying to raise my voice <laughs> in a positive way. Raising your voice has never been a problem. If you need a caddy, maybe I'll see if I can come to one or two of them with you. The one that I did go to was last year in Washington, D.C. I was invited to one. And it was patient storytelling. And not surprisingly, people wept because they were talking about their moment of diagnosis and what do they wish they could tell themselves 20 years ago before they found out they had cirrhosis or whatever else. Well, you know what? I'm going to give a plug, if that's okay, to GLI because I went to their uh, A3, the Advanced uh, Advocacy the Academy piece. I've gone three times, but this was in person. And there was a lot of storytelling training and learning how to succinctly communicate in a passionate way your message so that people understand the seriousness of it and what you're trying to say. And then even further, how to use it in a an environment like politics as an example and being able to advocate uh, for change. So there are a lot of us that are learning every day to get uh, better at being able to communicate that. So this is good. And it's been delight getting to catch up a little bit today. In all seriousness, there are two things I'd like to do at the meeting. Number one is we should do one of your promo videos one of the days of the meeting and try to see if we can keep our hair from blowing around. Okay. Second, um, at some point, we should sit down for 15, 20 minutes with a with microphone and talk about what are you learning about how to support patients better. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So we'll make time to do that during the meeting, not as part of the form, not a formal thing. I mean, we're going to be recording a couple of formal sessions while we're there and right afterwards. But in addition to that, I'm going to be trying to do some interviews with some people about specific things of interest. And this might be a fun one to do. This is this is it for now. I'm glad we could do this. Sorry, I didn't have a lot of open slots to do it. This is fine. It just worked out well. And um, enjoy the rest of your time in Toronto. Take care, guys. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed that interview. We will not have a business section this week. I will be back probably tomorrow with the next of our 2023 Liver Meeting leading interviews. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 
have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.